Hello and welcome to Optimal, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Dickon Weatherby, and this podcast and my website all focus on one thing, and that's the quest for optimal health. Our goal is to help you to help your patients achieve optimal health so they can experience an optimal life. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify. And also make sure to go over to OptimalDX.com and check out our resources on the site. Now, without any further delay, is today's episode. Hello there, everybody. Dr. Dick and Weatherby from Optimal DX, and welcome to Optimal, the podcast. We're having a first podcast of 2022, and I'm grateful to have Beth Allen DeLulio with me from Naples, Florida. Hey, Beth. Hi, hi. You eating a lot of oranges? <laughs> Trying. Yeah, you're lucky. You're in the warm, blissful sunshine of Naples, where I'm freezing here in Bend, Oregon. So yeah, we've got snow all around us, but that's okay. People oh. like to go out into the mountains, but yeah. I wouldn't mind throwing myself into some warm water <laughs> right about now. Anyway, so welcome to Optimal Podcast. We took a little bit of a break over the Christmas period. I had COVID. I don't know, Beth, you were working hard doing research. <laughs> I was stuck in bed sweating oh, with COVID. Better. Yeah, and dealing with a whole load of other stuff. Anyway, I'm better back on the saddle. But to kick off 2022, I wanted to kind of go over some of the AMA or Ask Me Anything questions that we get at Optimal TX, the software. So for those of you that are listening to this, you may not know that one of the great benefits of having a software subscription, and it, this is open to all software subscriptions, is that you can ask us questions. You post a question on Optimal DX. Our users can vote up and down whether they like, want to hear or whether they want to get an answer to these questions. And Beth does a phenomenal job of diving into the research and writing short articles explaining the research behind the answers to the questions. And we post those in our knowledge base. So at ODX, we actually do have a knowledge base, and I'll put the link up on the podcast page here. But if you want to go in and dive into the knowledge base, it's uh, totally available to you. You can go in, and I think it's kb.optimaldx.com, and you'll see tons of questions that we have answered. So I wanted to go through some of these and get Beth's input on some of the research that she went through in order mm -hmm. to answer these questions for us. So the first question is something that we get a lot. And that has to do with what biomarkers should I run on my patients to do a comprehensive functional blood chemistry analysis? So shameless plug here, I think the very first place that you should start is to get a copy of my book, beautiful title, Blood Chemistry and CBC Analysis, Clinical Laboratory Testing from a Functional Perspective. Obviously, I wasn't thinking about marketing at that particular time when I wrote that title, but it's out there, shameless plug, get out onto Amazon, you can buy yourself a copy. These are the kind of the main biomarkers, I think, that you should be running on your patients. But as we are aware, more and more biomarkers have kind of become in vogue. And people are, our practitioners are running and looking at a whole load of additional biomarkers that go above and beyond what I covered in that book and what we cover in the software. So what I would suggest in this particular situation is always start with a complete metabolic panel and a CBC. That's kind of your basic foundational start. There's a lot of great information that you can get from that. But if you wanted to dive a little deeper than that, start thinking about what systems, what body systems, what dysfunctions are you trying to get more information about on your patient or your client? For instance, if you're thinking that there's blood sugar regulation issues going on, 
Fasting glucose, yeah, that's a good one to start with, but you're going to want to add some things to that. You're going to want to add hemoglobin A1c, and you're going to want to add fasting insulin. Now, when you add fasting insulin and fasting glucose, boom, you can now start using some of the ratios and calculators that we've got built into the software, the HOMA calculators that tell you about insulin resistance, and also the quickie calculator as well. To that, you could potentially add C peptide and then adiponectin and glycomark if you want to kind of dive deeper into that. So I think the take-home message is that the very basic complete metabolic panel of CBC is going to get you a lot of the way there. And then you want to start adding things in. Inflammation, you're going to want to start adding in C-reactive protein. And we'll cover that in a minute because we've got a question on that too. So C-reactive protein would be really good. You want to start adding homocysteine and fibrinogen, some of these acute phase reactants that tell you about cardiovascular health and also inflammatory processes. You might want to start adding in some hormone biomarkers. You might want to add iron biomarkers. That's a very classic one because people typically look at CBCs. Most medical doctors look at CBCs. They say, oh, you know, the MCV is low, the MCHC is low. We've got uh, low red blood cell count, low hematocrit, low hemoglobin. We've got an iron deficiency anemia. Well, you've got a trend towards that, but you don't necessarily know categorically that that's what's going on. So that's when you start wanting to run more, more specific iron markers, serum iron, ferritin, TIBC, percent saturation, transparin, and that sort of thing. Thyroid biomarkers, Beth, this is one I think that people tend to focus too much attention on TSH. TSH, I think, is really good if you've got a primary hypothyroidism caused universally, I would think, by autoimmune thyroiditis, where your body starts to attack its own thyroid cells, doesn't produce enough thyroid hormone, the body then signaling the pituitary, hey, more TSH, more TSH, more TSH, trying to stimulate that thyroid to produce thyroid hormone, TSH levels start to go way up. That's your classic primary hypothyroidism. TSH isn't very helpful for other forms of hypothyroidism. So that's when you would run T4, free T4, T3, free T3, reverse T3, looking at some of the autoimmune markers as well. So that's just kind of a little dive in there of you know some additional biomarkers that you might want to run. Take home messages, hey, start with the complete metabolic panel, start with the CBC, and then add as you go. We have a suggested biomarker form on the website. So if you go over to optimaldx.com, go over to resources, look at our resource center, we've got a ton of different information there on different suggested biomarkers. Anything else you want to add to that, Beth? No, just comprehensive, comprehensive, comprehensive. You know, yeah. some people come to me with seven biomarkers and I'm like, well, I can't do a lot with this. Yeah, right. With this. But yeah, the more you can get in that first blood draw too, instead of having to send them back for a second blood draw, I think is kind of important because it is invasive in a sense. And some people hate to get their blood done. So the more you can get, I think, on that first go round, mm-hmm. I, I think the better. Yeah, and if you're using the software, the more biomarkers you put in there, the better job mm-hmm. the software does in order to give mm-hmm. you sense of probabilities of dysfunction and organ system deficiencies and things like that. Yeah, I always think if you've got a needle in the body, start drawing some blood. Mm-hmm. The blood will get replaced. I know from my own experience, I've talked to a lot of men about this, actually getting your blood drawn is actually really a very healthy thing for men to do. I always feel really energetic after I've had my blood drawn. And typically I'm doing 10 to 15 vials of blood. Yeah, something to think about. I know some people don't. I actually used to give blood regularly and I didn't even feel it until they told me I was totally anemic. And I had <laughs> No, really? Yeah, like I could go to aerobics afterwards and it was kind of weird. But then yeah. they're like, oh, no, you have to stay away for eight weeks. And 
Oh my God. Okay, no big deal. So yeah, yeah, some people feel good and some people feel really drained and some people pass out. I've seen it. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. My, well, I probably shouldn't say this. My son passed out having his blood drawn. Oh, so no. oh. he's a big hockey player. So uh, anyway. All right. So we move on to the next question. C-reactive protein. We had a question that says, what are the optimal values and purpose of testing the normal CRP in comparison to the HSCRP? And I think the point behind this question was in Europe, in London and, and England and other countries, many doctors just test for the standard CRP mm-hmm. and they're not looking at HSCRP. So mm-hmm. why would we want to do HSCRP versus CRP? What is the difference between the two? And I think the point that the, the real take-home message is you're measuring the same thing. It's just the methodology that they use to do the high-sensitivity CRP is more refined and therefore can accurately detect lower levels of CRP. Why don't you dive into kind of the differences between those two in some ways from a sort of an assessment perspective? Because you definitely looked at some information on that. Yeah, I mean, again, as long as people keep in mind that this is kind of the same molecule, we're just able to pick it up at ultra low levels. And those low levels now they're finding are still associated with atherosclerosis and cardiovascular risk. So we know that even just as CRP itself, it's associated with inflammation or bacterial infection, but we might not pick up those low, low levels. So the newer, the HS CRP assay, picks up those low levels and we have optimal and standard ranges for those mm-hmm. lower levels that they seem to really pan out now in the research that for conventional levels of HSCRP, they're even picking up on the fact that less than one milligram per liter is better. And they go through a range where they say, all right, you know, maybe three is okay, but really not ideal and you're at higher risk. And then in the middle of the range, 1.1 to 3 is the average relative cardiovascular risk. So that's the standard ranges. So our optimal ranges, like, well, we're a little bit tighter than that. Females definitely should be below 1, and males should only go up to 0.55 milligrams Mm -hmm. per liter. So the research has shown us the HSCRP significantly correlated with the severity of atherosclerosis, which is good because sometimes you can pick up subclinical atherosclerosis. People don't know they have it. They don't even know they're at risk but you might find that they're at risk with this HSCRP. Mm-hmm. So those with the atherosclerosis had a mean HSCRP of about 0.87. So it was below one. And those with atherosclerosis had higher levels of about 1.46. So the research is panning out to say, you know what, less than one is better, even though the standard ranges give that kind of tiered effect that, oh, if you're one to three, you're kind of okay. But the research is really saying the low one is best. And again, if you find somebody with an elevated HSCRP, find out what's going on. They might have an acute infection. Mm-hmm. They might have acute inflammation. And that might be acute and it might die down after a period of time. So this is something you'd want to definitely repeat and look for trends. But if they keep trending up over one, over two, especially or over three with the HSCRP, that's more like chronic inflammation. You do want to dig deeper into that. So the optimals, we're pretty tight on those optimal ranges, but the research is is supporting that. Mm -hmm. Good stuff. Yeah, I would suggest running HSCRP. I would say start testing that on patients over the age of 35 is sort of a general view. Obviously, if there are situations below that age, but Mm -hmm. part of sort of an anti-aging panel, I think uh, HSCRP, adding fibrinogen, adding homocysteine can be really, really helpful for early detection of uh, cardiovascular risk. So that's pretty cool. 
Okay, so a question here, Beth, around recommended time frame for repeating blood panels. So we just talked about how patients and clients don't like having their blood drawn. It's definitely a barrier to entry for doing functional blood. It's actually getting your hands on the results from a blood test. People don't like it. So asking someone to repeat a test is oftentimes quite hard. Well, you know, you're asking me to repeat that thing so soon. So I think it's important to have sort of a general guideline around when you want to retest. So the frequency of ordering blood work, I think, should depend on the condition of the individual and also what it is that you're trying to work on. If you've done a blood test and you're combining the information that you've got, let's say, from the software or even from your own analysis, and you're including other laboratory testing to sort of reinforce your diagnostic criteria, and then you're basing a treatment plan off of that, you're going to want to see that the biomarkers and other tests that you've run you want to see that you're moving in the right direction. So the question then becomes, how soon do we expect to see change? Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you, I would oftentimes recommend a three-month window. It gives the body enough time over three months to really work on the protocols that we were recommending to the patient mm -hmm. and then retest at that time. And we would potentially retest quite a few biomarkers. We would have them redo the questionnaires that we were looking at, trying to see whether or not there's improvement and change. We want to see them moving in the right direction. We're looking at trend analysis, right? So chronic disease, what do you think? Two to three month window, probably. If someone's had a condition for a long period of time, two to three month window. Yeah, if you're monitoring something, yeah, especially if you're monitoring something acute, that's chronic, <laughs> chronic disease, yeah. something acute that you want to take a look at. If they're willing, you know, every two to three months or where the red blood cells are involved, you know, every three to six months, if you can do it every that three month mark, that is mm. ideal. If they're willing because of the turnover of the red blood cells and same with the albumin, 120, 21 days, sorry, with the albumin. So it's And hemoglobin on, A1C at that time too, right? Yeah. That's yeah. yeah. Red blood yeah. cell based. Yeah. yeah. So again, depends on what you're looking at. If they're mm -hmm. really stable and they become stable, you know, it might be okay to just do it annually. If you get somebody kind of straightened out and on the right path and they're trending in the right direction and maintaining optimal ranges, then just an annual blood draw might do the trick as long as they stay with the plan, <laughs> the treatment plan that you've arranged from the lifestyle changes or what have you. Because we've gotten people into optimal range and then they go off for the summers to the north and then <laughs> yeah. come back and everything has changed. They go right back to kind of what they were at baseline. Yeah. So, it's important to remind people that this plan is working and you can look at the trends and they're doing better. But if you go off the plan, there's a good chance that these things can go revert back to being out of optimal. I think the take home point here is very much dependent on what it is that you're wanting to see from your patient. If it's a chronic disease monitoring, two to three month window is really good. If you're looking at monitoring something like an anemia or albumin, or other red blood cell related conditions, you're going to want to give the body a time to replace those red blood cells. That's that 120 day window. Also, for some people, a six month cycle can be really good. Mm -hmm. And then for that annual maintenance, something I can't stress more highly is if you've got the database of patients, you're going to have a whole load of patients that are in what we call condition care. And at some point, those patients are going to transition from condition care into maintenance care. And if you're really sensible, you contact those people on an annual basis and remind them, come in for an annual blood test. It's a great opportunity for us to review where you're at. We wanted to keep you moving in the direction of optimal health. A regular blood test or an annual blood test can be really helpful. 
allowing us to do that for you. It's a great practice builder, great way to get people in to fill in those slots in your clinic schedule. So yeah, when someone is stable, healthy, maybe in that maintenance stage with you, you know, annual monitoring will probably I mean, be say good. at least annual. Because I, yeah, I haven't had blood work in six years. I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, next question. And this is something, I, this question actually I'm really glad that you dove into because it's something that people have asked about a lot and it's anterior pituitary dysfunction. Mm-hmm. And it's something that we talk about in the software. And now that we've instituted the treatment plan concept, we're now integrating with Fullscript and developing this whole concept of treatment plans. You know, anterior pituitary dysfunction comes up quite a bit in the software. And it's one of those kind of things that I don't think gets taught a lot in medical schools or nutritional programs. I don't know about your program where they talk much about it. But in my training, my blood chemistry training, I definitely cover anterior pituitary dysfunction from the thyroid perspective. And that's, I guess, probably where these questions are coming from. So the question was, what are some of the ways to support anterior pituitary dysfunction? And I think you quite rightly responded, support for anterior pituitary dysfunction depends on the cause of the dysfunction Mm -hmm. and what hormones are affected. Anterior pituitary produces, I think, four different hormones, correct? ACTH, TSH, G, growth hormone, and ADH. I'm just checking my notes here. So why don't you run through what those deficiencies might be, and then also potentially some of the solutions that you kind of found. And so I would, this is a a wonderful response that Beth did. It's in the knowledge base. She cites, I think, 26 different references. So nicely done. Take it away. (laughs) Well, it was, you know, and it was kind of a general question, but we suspected they really were asking about its relation to thyroid dysfunction. But I did go into the other things. And just a tiny bit about the other hormones, the TSH, growth hormone, ACTH, LH, FSH, and prolactin. We really didn't get into those last three very much at all, that those have to be monitored. You have to look at what where a woman is in the menstrual cycle for some of those. So we didn't really expect that that was the question. There was a question about those. So the ACTH deficiency is possible. You can have that with adrenal insufficiency. You'd have fatigue and postural hypotension. The TSH deficiency, which we're going to focus on in a moment, gives you hypothyroidism. And that's when the thyroid's not getting the signal to make TSH from the pituitary. Gonadotropin deficiency, hypogonadism, we did a whole large white paper and a number of blogs on that. GH growth hormone deficiency, really not that common. In children, you're going to see their short stature and difficulty driving or failure to thrive. Adults, it's usually asymptomatic and they might feel fatigued and weak, but really not that common. And then ADH deficiency, hypernatremia, polyuria, and diluted urine, that's diabetes insipidus. And not quite as common either as thyroid deficiency. So thyroid function, hypopituitism, tourism. (laughs) So when you have a disruption in TSH metabolism and thyroid function, that's when you can look at your blood chemistry biomarkers and confirm the pattern. If it's secondary hypothyroidism and it's because of the pituitary, right? So that's central hypothyroidism. That's when the TSH might be low or even low normal, but free in total T3 and T4 will be low. And that's why we talked about the TSH alone isn't going to tell you about secondary or central hypothyroidism. So you could have this low normal TSH. Oh, that's okay. But you're not getting a look at their free and total T3 and T4. So it's super important. Yeah, why not? at least throw free T3 and free T4 into that first blood drawer, you know, and then you could follow up more if you needed to. 
But to see that TSH low normal or normal in a low T3, T4, you know something is going on. And there are other things that can cause this, like uh, hemochromatosis that can contribute to hypopituitism and also to hypothyroidism. So check there, ferritin, check there, iron stats. Mm -hmm. Uh, Stress can also contribute to pituitary dysfunction and thyroid dysfunction. So check their stress level. How are they coping? Because, you know, everybody has stress and how we cope with it is going to affect how your body reacts, right? And how your body itself copes with it. So with a lot of stress, you can have a lot, you can have pituitary dysfunction. So hopefully it's acute stress that can be resolved, but that can lead to reduced TSH from the pituitary. Symptoms of the central or secondary hypothyroidism are very similar to the primary hypothyroidism. So don't just look at the labs, right? But always check for symptoms, fatigue, cold intolerance, constipation, depression, dry skin, tachycardia, mm-hmm. hyperreflexia, those things. Because again, we never diagnose just from a lab report alone. You have to look at what's going on with the person. And even better, look at trends. Sometimes we just get a question about one set of blood work. And really, the question is, how has this changed over the last year or two? I like to see people's three and four and five years back I've looked at. Because mm-hmm. I might say, you've had this issue for a while and no, nobody's addressed it. <laughs> So we just gently kind of introduce the idea that might be something going on and we have to look into it further. So again, now somebody that has this hypofunction of the anterior pituitary, they might need thyroid hormone replacement. It can be a natural source. Some are on a synthetic source, but if you get the synthetic levothyroxine, just T4 by itself, there might be an issue with converting that to T3. So always, I am a fan of the glandulars, like a um, natrified. Yeah. And some people don't do well on them, but some people do really well on them because you're getting a little bit of T4 and a little bit of T3. So if you need for sure a thyroid hormone replacement, because again, it's not that your body can't make the hormone, it's just not getting the signal to make it. So people are like, well, just let me put them on thyroid support and I'll give them tyrosine. I'll give them, you know, I'll give them some iodine. I'm like, yeah, the selenium, they have all that available, but they're not getting the signal from the pituitary. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, there might be some people that definitely need replacement. And there's not too much you can do about that. So you can choose a natural source that, you know, you might have a little bit of, of luck using some of the, um, the non-hormone support, but a lot of times people will need the hormone replacement. So there's some things, again, if someone's just going to get T4, you always have to check for T3 and free T3 because you can't assume that's going to get sufficiently converted to the active or the free T3 hormone that's going to do its job in the body. So those are things to remember. What is the cause? Are there some causes that might be transient? Are there causes that might be treatable like hemochromatosis or stress? And then if it's a for sure anterior pituitary problem and they have secondary hypothyroidism, they might need replacement. Mm-hmm. And that could be porcine thyroid extracts or it depends on the product of choice, but they might need replacement, unfortunately, not just support. And there's definitely, I think, there are certain situations where it's not really thyroid. It's not a thyroid issue. It actually is a pituitary dysfunction. Mm-hmm. Something that Datis Karazian, I'm sure you've read his book. What's it called? Uh, why do I still have symptoms? Why do I still have thyroid symptoms by lab tests and normal? Yeah, it's a great book, by the way. <laughs> I refer to it all the time. But he has a distinct pattern, obviously, the same one that we're looking at, which is secondary, which is that low TSH and also having low output of thyroid hormone. He talks a little bit about in pregnancy, the stress of pregnancy can somehow trigger anterior pituitary issues. It's um, only the beginning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then also just 
chronic stress. Now, we all know that everyone mm-hmm. is under chronic stress. In fact, little plug, I think our next podcast is mm-hmm. going to be about stress. So maybe Beth Ellen will dig up some stuff around the pituitary and stress. Mm-hmm. I know that there are some companies that are specializing glandular extracts that are not necessarily hormone glandulars, like, you know, pituitary. porcine, mm-hmm. but they have like anterior pituitary glandulars. Biotics Research, I think, has one. Uh, Cytosine AD, I think is what it's called. Standard process, I believe. So there's definitely room for those types of, of glandulars. But yeah, I think the most important thing is getting to the root cause. All right, shifting gears. And this is kind of an interesting question. Again, we get a lot of these questions from people that I think are, are sort of almost pointing us to want to answer their clinical questions about mm. individual patients. So we've got to be really careful that, you know, mm-hmm. this is just general advice that we're giving you. This is, We are not doing your job for you. So this was around hemoglobin A1C and fasting glucose. So there are going to be potentially situations where you're looking and you see a patient has a low hemoglobin A1C. In this particular case, it was 4.3%, which is relatively low, yet have an elevated fasting glucose of 105. So the question is, you're like, why is that happening? Well, the time period in which you're looking at something is very different. With hemoglobin A1C, you're looking at 120-day red blood cell saturation with glycosylated or glycated hemoglobin. So it's like how much exposure do those red blood cells have to sugars over a 120-day period? And that's kind of what we're measuring. Yet fasting glucose, I think, is more of a short-term window into glucose regulation and glucose control. So I think it is entirely possible that over 120 days, someone might have quite well-controlled glucose levels. And then for whatever reason, you know, it could be stress, it could be diet, it could be, you know, that they just exercise or whatever it could be that they have that high glucose around the time of testing. And we check too if they did fast before the test because some people yeah, that don't is true. Or they forget or it doesn't even say sometimes yeah. on the blood work. So always have they have a history of this? Is it 105? It's been 105 for six months or a year or two years. You know, yeah. maybe then you have an issue, but is it a one-time thing? Did they really fast? Are they stressed? Are they, did they have an infection? Mm-hmm. Is it a one-time thing I think is important to ask. So the other thing too, and I don't know if you've ever seen this before, but you can sometimes get rebound elevated fasting glucose based on cortisol outputs. Mm-hmm. So let's say you had your fasting glucose done at 10 or 11 o'clock and you have fasted all morning. You can actually get an elevated glucose from the body's natural response to kind of try and keep your blood sugar levels mm-hmm. propped up and then cortisol levels start to go up. Mm-hmm. I've actually done that myself when I was doing more sort of the intermittent fasting. The early days of intermittent fasting, I was testing my blood glucose first thing in the morning, and then I was testing it around 11 o'clock before I broke the fast. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing. First thing in the morning, my glucose levels around 81, 82. Mm-hmm. And then on certain occasions around 11 o'clock, it was like 96. I was like, what the heck is going on? So I started doing some research into it. And sure enough, you get this rebound, elevated glucose because of cortisol stress. The body's just going, hey, we need to get back glucose levels up. Even diabetics, we had to counsel them, you know, because if they didn't eat enough at night, then in the middle of the night, they'd have a low blood glucose. They didn't realize it, especially around insulin. They didn't realize it. The body's stress response kicks in, kicks up their blood glucose, and they wake up with a super high fasting yeah. glucose samadhi, samadhi effect. So yeah, that's a definitely a rebound. So people have to be aware of that too. And that goes, so not everybody tolerates a longer fasting. You know, yeah. Fasting, so. so I think the point is that there are, could be many reasons why that fasting blood glucose might be elevated. It could be that they weren't fasting or that they maybe mm-hmm. thought that they were able to drink a cup of sweet coffee on the way to the blood draw. <laughs> <laughs> there are medications that could be elevating the glucose. Yep. 
They could be under increased stress or it could be under metabolic stress. They could have an active infection, something that you write in your response, all of which can increase glucose. And so I think this is an opportunity here, almost like that first question that we answered in terms of, you know, what type of blood biomarkers can I run to get a comprehensive fasting or comprehensive functional blood analysis? Well, this is one of those situations where you probably want to dive into doing a few more biomarkers. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the oral glucose tolerance test, or you could add in the fasting insulin with that as well, which kind of gives you that nice insulin curve along with the glucose levels. Mm -hmm. You want to be measuring fasting insulin, C-peptide. That gives you the HOMA scores. That gives you how much is the beta cell output happening? How much sensitivity or insensitivity do you have to insulin on the cellular level? And then giving you an index of insulin resistance, which is a super cool calculator that we've got built into the software. If you want to go back onto the ODX website, Beth wrote some really cool articles on each of those individual biomarkers on the HOMA calculator. Just search for HOMA and, and those will come up and really, really useful stuff. You talk about testing for fructosamine, you could even do glycated albumin, which kind of gives you a little bit of a shorter window for glucose control, I would expect. Fructosamine, I believe, is three to four weeks, is that right? I think it is something like this, much shorter than the hemoglobin A1C. And then glycated albumin, I'm sure, would be... That's um, common, but yeah, if you can get them. You know, I like this last little bit that you put in here, and you gave a reference for this. The blood sample source and how the blood is handled mm -hmm. can influence results. The length of the mm -hmm. time the blood spends in the test tube can affect glucose levels, which can increase by 5 to 7% per hour. So these are all the things that we don't necessarily consider when we're looking at blood chemistry analysis is what was the state of the blood draw? Was mm -hmm. the hemolysis happening when the blood draw was happening? What's the state of the stress levels that the patient was on when the needle was put into their arms? Did they faint? Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then how was the sample handled? You know, was it spun down in the right time or, or all that kind of stuff? Yeah. Was it whole blood? Was it plasma? Yeah, yeah of all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think we probably have time for one more, don't you think, Beth? Sure. Fatty liver. Mm. Now, fatty liver biomarkers. So this was a question. Fatty liver biomarkers, in your view, what would be the complete list of biomarkers to monitor for those who already have fatty liver? And how often should they get tested? Well, we have sort of an index for fatty liver in the software, and there's definitely some biomarkers that we look at. So non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or NAFLD, is actually quite common. Mm -hmm. And the first biomarker I would probably take a look at is ALT. We've got quite a good optimal, I think, for ALT. I think our, our high optimal, I think, is like 21 or something like that. So anything above that would suggest that the liver is being compromised on some level. Those transaminase enzymes are being released for some reason. NAFLD is actually quite common. Traditional liver function tests, so that would be alkaline phosphatase, AST, ALT, GGT, and LDH would be probably a good complement to take a look at. You probably also want to look at these other biomarkers that can tell you about insulin resistance. So that would be fasting glucose, C-peptide, and fasting insulin would give you a nice number of biomarkers to then do the HOMA scores. Like I just said in the previous answer, was would give us a real good sense of whether or not insulin resistance is around. What do you think? HSCRP, probably be good looking at inflammation. Inflammation, bilirubin, cholesterol. Oh, yeah, everything. Absolutely. That whole full comprehensive picture to see what's really going on. Mm -hmm. Did somebody just punch him in? If you're just looking at, say, the ALT and somebody just punched him in the liver. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> Find true. Find that out too. Yeah. And also, I mean, I, 
ALT can be quite labile. It can change from moment to moment. So if you are seeing a greatly elevated ALT level and there's not much evidence of liver, it could be a transitory increase. And I have mm-hmm. seen this. I've seen mm-hmm. people who maybe go out and play an aggressive game of basketball mm-hmm. a couple of nights before. Remember, the ALT does get released from the muscle as well. It's one of those enzymes that gets measured when someone has a heart attack. They measure AST and ALT levels over time. They can actually pinpoint based upon the levels and the release of these enzymes when somebody had a heart attack. It's that specific. Mm-hmm. So it is quite labor. Oh, sorry. I want to say acetaminophen too. I had a friend call me. She said, my ALT is 51. And I oh, my God. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Acetaminophen. Yeah. Tylenol. Tough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not good stuff. It's pretty toxic yeah. to the liver. So let's just run through those again. Well, why don't you run through the kind of the, the ones that you had seen on the research that they should let's be looking see. at? All right, let's see. Frankenzani. Frankenzani. Where was that? Where was that done from? That was. That was In the Journal of Hepatology. Yeah. So they, they looked at albumin, globulin, bilirubin, cholesterol, enzymes, ALT, ASG, GGT, alcos, BLDH, should have been added in there. Ferritin, uric acid, even 25 OH vitamin D, uh-huh. fasting glucose and insulin. What we talked about fasting triglycerides and HSCRP. Because a lot of times, if you have an issue like NAFLD, they're on their way to metabolic syndrome or vice versa. They're closely related, but also yeah, oxidative stress could contribute, endothelial dysfunction, cardiovascular disease. So if you see these markers related to the liver consistently elevated or consistently out of optimal, that's definitely something you want to follow up with. Check their blood glucose regulation, their insulin resistance or the insulin or glucose tolerance. Go broader if you see these trends, I say, going on over time. Mm-hmm. And if some of them are just like a one-time thing, like we just talked about something, you know, might have been a hard workout or they got punched in the, the liver. Or maybe <laughs> they a heart issue. How often do you get punched in the liver? I'm, I'm... <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a common thing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Every night I go out drinking at the bar. Oh, uh, you got the bar, yeah. <laughs> Which I don't do. No, me neither. You also mentioned the ALT-AST ratio. This is, again, something mm-hmm. that we calculate in the software. So a ratio of 1.07 may reflect low-grade disease and established NAFLD, while a ratio of 1.46 would be associated with more severe disease. If you want to know more about these ratios, again, go over to the blog, search for ALT-AST. There's some great research mm-hmm. articles that have been written about this as well. Again, coming back to how often one monitors biomarkers, you recommended monitoring every six months, looking for signs of improvement, especially for markers of liver function. Those blood sugar regulation markers looking for improvements in insulin resistance and inflammation and oxidative stress. Let's end here, Beth, with it's all very well to be diagnosing and assessing and then monitoring and following up. Let's talk a little bit about just some of the basic treatment concepts. I mean, I think that's so important as nutritionists. You you share your wisdom and, and your clinical experience with us on that level. Run us through just some of the, the treatment ideas that you kind of came up with that are a part of this answer. Yeah. And again, supported by research. And some of these are the basics, like a really balanced plant-based diet. I'm still, I'm a fan of the Mediterranean diet. We talked a little bit about sustainable Mediterranean diet. I think that should be incorporated into our treatment plans and into our diets and our habits and things like that. So we want a sustainable Mediterranean diet so that we can stretch out our resources for every human on the planet. So 
that Mediterranean plant-based diet gives you micronutrients, gives you fiber, antioxidants, anti-inflammatory compounds, healthy monounsaturated fats, healthy omega-3 fatty acids. And a a really healthy version would restrict animal protein, especially any processed meats, Mm. restrict the saturated fats, especially from animal-based products. When I say saturated fats are not so good, that's usually from animal-based products, not not plant-based saturated uh, trans fat, really, really nasty. You want to eliminate that as much as you can. Eliminate excess sugar. And that occasional dessert, I always tell people that's that's fine, you know, but don't have excess sugar every single day. Processed foods, you want to really minimize because you lose so many nutrients and they're not all put back when you have mm-hmm. highly processed foods. So sometimes you're missing out on so many nutrients when your diet is highly processed. So these are really basic whole foods, plant-based foods, go organic when you can. Because toxins too are very tough on your liver. Your liver has to try to detoxify pesticides and all these other toxins that we come across. So that can really be tough on the liver if you have a lot of exposure or if you're losing weight. When people lose weight, again, all those stored toxins, they get released into the bloodstream, go back through the liver, trying to get them processed. So that's really tough on the liver as well. So go organic when you can, plant-based diet, you know, restricted in animal-based foods, but some is, I'm okay. I'm a fan of, you know, small amounts of animal-based foods. That's a whole nother story if we can mm-hmm, talk about the animal mm-hmm. and how they treat yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So that basic healthy diet, being, I think, grateful, sit down, take a deep breath before your meal, you know, be a bit thankful. And that sense of gratitude sometimes actually can be a healthy thing in and of itself. So putting it all together, I think is really important. And then not just focusing on this person has NAFLG, we're going to do this for them, but instead adopt this healthy lifestyle and watch how some of these chronic conditions improve, including Mm -hmm. type 2 diabetes, right? Obesity, high blood pressure, all these things improve with a really healthy diet and a really healthy lifestyle. So I think that's the take-home message. This could be good for everybody pretty much. Yeah, I agree. Love it. Oh, thank you so much. Well, we covered, I think, five or six questions. So if you are interested in looking at some other answers, you could go to KB, K as in kryptonite, B as in boy, <laughs> dot optimalgx.com, KB standing for knowledge base. And you can look at clinical questions, biomarker questions, software questions, anything like that. Another thing, shameless plug, please go over to our blog. We write really cool, in-depth research-based articles. We have a research blog and we have a regular blog. You can subscribe to both and then you'll get regular updates when we post. There's some really neat articles on there. Like I said, you know, Beth Allen does this phenomenal job with her research and we try and make these as clinically relevant as possible. It's not just about the research. It's about how do we apply this mm-hmm. in your practice. If you are at all interested in our AMA program, it's part of our ODX subscriptions, come on over, check out our software. There's a 30-day free trial. We are building a whole treatment plan builder. We're starting off with our full script integration, our phase two release of treatment plans based upon a whole myriad of different products, sources other than, yeah, we love full script, obviously, but there are people outside of the US and Canada that mm-hmm. don't use full script. We are going to be building a really phenomenal treatment builder. And Beth's going to be working with us. We're going to be slowly adding in diet, lifestyle, and movement. Mm-hmm. So I'm really excited for 2022. It's going to be really a great opportunity to become part of the ODX family. What else have we got going on? Yeah, my training, FBCA Mastery Training Program. If you're at all interested in diving deep into functional blood chemistry, come on over to the website, check out our training link and uh, join me in the training. It's, it's really, mm-hmm. really fun. Beth, give us a little heads up on uh, stress. Uh, you've been working on this deep 
white paper on stress and we'll be covering some of yeah. it for our next podcast. <laughs> stress will kill you. How stressed are you about your stress paper? <laughs> stress, you know, and I with with GI problems, stress really gets you. It's kind of like this alarm yeah. that goes off in your intestine. So you have to practice deep breathing, especially, but all the things that are related to stress, high blood pressure, high blood glucose, just a lot of different things that people don't relate to stress are related to stress. Mm. So again, just like a really healthy diet and lifestyle, if you take on or adopt a really good program of stress management, because stress is always going to be there unless you can literally escape it, <laughs> but mm-hmm. it's going to be there. So how you cope with it is going to reflect in how well your body can handle it. So deep breathing, especially, I talk about grounding, literally laying down on the ground or bare mm-hmm. feet on the ground and earthing a little bit. Forest uh, bathing. Yes, forest bathing. Get out and connect with nature. Just these little things, deep breathing. If you're stuck in traffic, that's a great, great opportunity to sit down and take some deep breaths. Sometimes it's five or 10 minutes you're stuck there. And that's a good time to do some deep breathing. A healthy diet is super important. But if we go into the physiology and the biomarkers that are related, but also, again, the lifestyle changes that hopefully will help you cope with stress. I tell people walk every day. If you can do 30 minutes in the morning, 30 minutes at night, you can talk to somebody on the phone, you can listen to music, you can learn a new language, you can do different things, but make sure you set aside that time to do something active outside if you can. And that's a real stress reliever too, unless the person you're talking to is stressful and you got to choose the right person. Yeah, you got to choose the right person to talk to. Yeah, Yeah. but managing stress is key. And then watch those biomarkers improve. Perfect. Well, we're going to be covering probably the the optimal takeaways for a lot of this work in our next podcast. We might answer a few more questions. I hope you found this helpful. Let us know. And yeah, we look forward to seeing you next time. Again, if you're interested in our work, optimaldx.com forward slash blog is a great way to follow the work that we do. And Beth, thank you very much for all that you do. And look forward to sharing this space with you again next month. Thank you so much. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.